As I was praying, I was thinking about how this is the uh, the day when our culture honors fathers, and we should be thankful for that. And we should we're so used to uh, if we're faithful, we're so used to cutting against the grain with our culture and what it emphasizes and celebrates. This is the day when we can go with the grain, <laughs> and we should be thankful for that. And I think it's superficial and sentimental generally, but we know the truth and we know the father. And so if you're a father, we honor you. Um, we honor you because you were made to honor God with your fatherhood. And so we honor your fatherhood. And if you're not a father, uh, biologically, you're still a father and, um, and we honor you as well. I was thinking of all the men that David Canfield, where is David? Ah, there he is. I'm not going to ask you to do this, um, but I could, but I won't. Um, All of you young men who have been fathered by David Canfield, if I ask you to stand, David has more children than any of us. And, uh, and so we honor you for your fatherhood as well. And there are other men like David who don't have children of their own, but man, is he a father. And, and we, we love that. There's fatherhood in the family. There's fatherhood in the church. And it's interesting also that, um, of all things, we're reading Genesis 5 today, which is nothing about fathers. <laughs> the father of so-and-so and the father of so-and-so. And I tell you what, you can have lots of children in 900 years. And evidently they did, because, you know, the world got filled up. Uh, Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 6. The words are behind me as well. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 6. It says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Now you might be wondering, why in the world is he preaching from that passage this morning? What in the world does that have to do with Father's Day? We're going to talk about barbecues and meat and, you know, no, that's not what we're talking about. I am going to preach about and to fathers. And what I want to do this morning, you've noticed in verse 6 here, 1 Corinthians 8, he makes this amazing statement. There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to shatter the drabness that has settled in on, on our minds and settled in over... All of our culture when it comes to fatherhood, not just fatherhood, but everything. 
I want to shatter that drabness, blow away the haze that our own fallenness has whipped up to hide, to cover up, to obscure the glory of fatherhood. Because before we can even think about fatherhood, we need to think about how our society thinks about everything. Now, two weeks ago, I preached a sermon about battle and about the church militant and the church triumphant. And I said that's a big picture sermon where we have to think about the big picture Whoops! before we can think about the details. The details of your life won't make sense as a Christian unless you stand back and see the big picture of battle and embrace that. And the same thing is true with fatherhood. Your duties as a father won't make sense unless you stand back and see the big picture of what fatherhood actually means. But it's bigger than that. It's really about everything. So step back for a minute. Think about how our society looks at everything. Because according to the way that our society thinks, everything in the world is simply the result of what? Time plus what? Chance plus matter. You know, stuff. Time, chance, matter explains everything for our culture. And so they think about everything through that little tiny lens. So take things that are glorious. Take solar systems. Take suns. Take galaxies, planets. To our culture, though all of that glory is nothing. It's, it's coldly analyzed in terms of gases and heat and hydrogen and friction and gravity. And by the time they're done with it, there's nothing left, really. Or human emotions. Every human emotion is analyzed down to a chemical reaction, chemical electronic reaction going on in certain parts of the brain. You know, they map them out. Here's where love is. It's like right back in here somewhere. You know? Or beauty. Any sense of beauty that we have is simply a biological response, if beauty even exists at all. Or even men and women as a whole are no different than viruses, no different than bacteria, no different than any other organism on the planet. We're just, we're just complex chemical reactions. Here's a comment that um, an atheist left on Pastor Bailey's blog last week that really catches this point of view, this rebellion. And this is what this atheist said. He says, life, he's, having, he's taking pity on us poor Christians, is what he's doing. And he's saying, life is infinitely more complex than your mythical story of heaven and hell. And that is because complexity is merely the appearance of simplicity compounding increasingly over large amounts of time. Did you get that? Oh, well, thanks. That's, that helps. That helps a lot. That really gets me. That, that's what I want to wake up in the morning for. Hi, honey. I know you're a woman, but actually you're just merely the appearance of simplicity compounding increasingly over large amounts of time. 
He says, um, the religiously indoctrinated mind, unfortunately, is not able to comprehend the critical thinking necessary to see farther than small increments of time and understanding the utterly massive size and scope of things without applying a very human anthropomorphic principle anyways. And then he says, it's sad, really. So, you know, we're stuck with glory. He's stuck with time. And that is sad, isn't it? It's sad that we live in a culture that dilutes our minds by the rationalism of explanation. In other words, everything is so analyzed, everything so explained away, that we are left with nothing. We live in a culture in which nothing means anything. Nothing means anything. It doesn't mean anything. It just is. And it's as if we live in a land of constant fog where colors are washed out, where details are muddled, where everything's just kind of gray. And you come up to a, what should be a vast, you know, scenic view where you can see bigness and things that are bigger than you, but you can't see anything. There's nothing there to see. Which is why we live or why we have the constant need in our culture for stimulation. We, we constantly need stimulation. Uh, from iPods, from our iPhones, from our internets, from our movie, uh, you know, because the real world is boring. Nothing, it doesn't mean anything. So we're constantly trying to pump something into ourselves that, make, that makes us uh, have something, because the world itself is drab and gray. And this wet blanket of drabness that we live under brings with it an almost total lack of imagination. Our culture has flattened everything out. It's so analyzed everything. It's so explained every explained away every notion of wonder, every notion of glory that we have lost our ability to imagine and we've lost our ability even to think. Because you can't think if you can't imagine. Think of this. What is a lack of imagination? How would you define that? How would you describe a person who has no imagination whatsoever? Maybe you've known someone like this. A person with no imagination lives as if what he can see and touch and hear and taste and smell is all that there is. It's all there is, the stuff that he can sense. The only things that are real, the things that can be sensed. And do you see how wicked that is? It's absolutely wicked to live as if the only things that are real are the things that you can sense. It is complete unbelief. A total lack of imagination is not some neutral um, fault. It's, it's wickedness. Because it's blatant unbelief to live as, as if all there is is what you can see. As if everything can be explained by atoms and chemicals and instinct. It's blatant unbelief. But it is the, the air that our culture breathes. And all of us are affected by it. None of us is immune because we ourselves have filled our lungs in one way or another with this air of unbelief that leaves us flat and bored, disinterested, unimpressed with withered imaginations that can only see the stuff in front of our eyes. That's why when we read the scriptures that tell us glorious things, you know, 
Where's my iPod? Give me something that's interesting. Because we have no eyes to see it. But if a person who lacks imagination lives as if the only things that are real are the things that can be sensed, how, what would be the opposite of that? How would someone live who did have imagination? The person with a well-developed sense of imagination is the person who at least has the potential for seeing what's really there. At least the potential. Because imagination is seeing the invisible. It's the ability to make connections between the invisible and the visible, between heaven and, and earth. Make connections between the past and the future and the present. That's what imagination takes. Or that's what it does. And do you understand how vital that is to the Christian life? You cannot possibly be a good Christian without a good imagination. It's impossible. And here's why. You and I don't live out of what we can see. No one really lives out of what they can just see, what they can sense. We live out of what our imaginations do with what we can see. We assign meaning to everything that we can see. And it either means nothing, which is assigning meaning to it, or it means something magnificent and glorious which is to say that's to to live as a christian if our imaginations are shriveled and atrophied and limp then our lives that flow out of that will be shriveled and atrophied and limp but we should live out of a rich imagination and by imagination i'm not talking about making things up that are not real i'm talking about being able to see the things that are really there but you can't see with these eyes. Now, what in the world does all of that have to do with fathers? It has everything to do with fathers. Fathers, if you look at yourself with the eyes of faithful imagination, then you can see that you are filling one of the most significant roles in the universe. Being a father is not just the result of biological functions. It's not just a product of our traditions. Being a father has its origins in the being and the character and the nature of God himself. And it is woven into the fabric of the universe. Think about what we just read in 1 Corinthians 8, especially verse 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. When the Apostle Paul wrote those words, when the Holy Spirit of God breathed those words through Paul's pen, he wasn't just making something up to be a nice picture of God, and he wasn't just using fatherhood as a convenient illustration to describe something about God. He is saying the nature of God is Father. There is but one God, the Father. There is no other God but the God who is Father. The, the God who is real, the God who exists, the one and only true God is Father. God did not take on fatherhood at some point in His existence. He has always been Father. And, and He certainly didn't just find 
you know, this biological necessity of fatherhood that he saw in the world, he didn't just find it and use it as a convenient way of describing himself. He didn't look around at his creation trying desperately to find an adequate picture of what he is like and say, Aha, there it is. That's what it is. I know. Fatherhood. That's what I'll say. I'll say that I'm like a father and then they'll understand me. No way. It's exactly the opposite of that. Oh, shoot. I knew it was going to happen. This verse has actually been quoted a couple of times this morning. Um, Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, says that God the Father, God is the Father from whom all fatherhood derives its name. What does that mean? God created fatherhood among us men in order to point to a greater reality of Him and His fatherhood. His fatherhood is the original thing. Our fatherhood is a little shadow of Him. Now, when Paul wrote those words, Ephesians 3:14 and 15, He is the Father from whom all fatherhood derives its name. I believe he was hinting at a, at, a, at a reality that goes far beyond fatherhood. And you see this all through Scripture. He was actually pointing to a magnificent reality that applies to everything in this world. He was pointing to the reality that the entire created universe was made by God and for God. The verse we have up here that I'm talking to you from preaching is, is verse 6. For us there is but one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. From whom are all things, and we exist for Him. The world exists for Him to show what He is like. Nothing is accidental and, and arbitrary in the world that we live in. Paul says the same kind of thing in Colossians 1 of Christ. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, God is the goal and the end of creation. He is the ultimate reality, reality to which everything points. He is the one who gives meaning to every detail of the universe. He alone holds every part of the universe together and makes everything make sense. In Him, all things hold together and come together and make sense. Why is the world like it is? Everything that exists in the world exists to point to truth about God, and He designed the world that way on purpose. Some of you have heard me say this before, but I want you to hear it again. Think about the world that we live in. We live in a world where there is such a thing as, as soil and roots and tree trunks. We live in a world where there's such a thing as vines and branches that either bear fruit or don't. 
We live in a world where there are gardens that have to be tended. We live in a world where there are rivers that make glad cities. And springs that gush out of rocks and oceans that cover the earth. We live in a world where mountains soar to the heavens, where fortresses stand firm against all assault, where seeds fall to the earth and die but rise to bear a fruitful harvest. We live in a world where grapes grow and are crushed to make wine that makes glad the heart of man. We live in a world where there are things like doors and roads and light that pierces the darkness and bread that nourishes and yeast that permeates and fills and changes everything. We live in a world where good kings rule justly and make laws and judge from holy thrones. We live in a world where husbands choose and pursue and capture and delight in a wife that they live and die for. And live in a world where there are wives who gladly follow and gladly submit to their husbands. And we live in a world where there are fathers. Now, if you, if you know the Bible, you know that all I did just then was quote to you Scripture. The Scripture uses every one of those pictures to point to God. But it doesn't just find them in the world and scramble around and find convenient things that we can look at that maybe will make us think of God. God made the world that way so that we would think of God and know Him. We live in a world where fathers care for their children and give them bread and fish instead of stones and serpents. And where fathers encourage and exhort and implore and teach and reprove and discipline their children for their children's good. Where fathers welcome and embrace erring sons cast robes around their shoulders and put rings on their fingers and sandals on their feet and throw a big party when they come home. The Lord God Almighty made a world where all of that particular stuff is true. Not just on a whim or by some arbitrary chance, He made all of it with the specific purpose of pointing to Himself. Do you really think that the actual details of our world are accidents. Just happen to turn out that way haphazardly. Just happen to haphazardly develop the way that it has. But the world could have looked very, very different if certain molecules aligned in, in slightly different ways. And we could have... No. The world is exactly as it is. Because God is the Father from whom are all things. And we exist for Him. The reality is that our whole universe is shot through with glory. It is every way, everywhere, if only we had eyes to see it. But we don't have eyes to see it. Particularly because 
We live in a culture that has poisoned us and told us actually there is nothing there. But we should be seeing everywhere we look. We should be seeing what is invisible but is very real. We should be seeing the God who made this world to declare His own glory in every detail. Now, what in the world does that have to do with fatherhood? Being a father is not just about you and your individual life and your individual responsibilities. It's not about sentimentality. It is not about biology and paychecks and making it to the soccer games every now and then when your schedule allows it. No, being a father is really about the very nature of the universe that God has made, and it's ultimately about the very nature of God Himself. To be a father is to take on the, the huge weight and responsibility of participating in glorious ways in the glory that God has designed the universe to represent. It's to take on your shoulders the weight of declaring the glory of God to men and angels. Fathers, no matter who you are, no matter how poor you are, no matter how, how educated or uneducated you are, you are kings. Every one of you is a king. You're a king of an entire realm. Now, that realm might be a thousand square feet, but you're a king of your household. And that's not just a show or a sham. It's not what you pretend to be as a father. It is actually what you are. Another way of putting it is that you stand in the place of God in your home. This is why children, you children, must honor your fathers. Because your fathers stand in the place of God in your home. It's what God says about all authority, isn't it? All authority is established by God. If you disobey authority, you're disobeying God because God is the one from whom all authority flows. It's, it's true across the board, but it's especially true of your fathers because Scripture says there is one God, the Father. This gives us our dignity and our duty, men. This does not say that you have the freedom to be a despot or a tyrant or some kind of unreasonable authoritarian. Because in God's fatherhood, we have our pattern. And we get from Him our dignity. We are like kings in our home, but also our duty. And we'll talk more about that in a second, the duty. This is also why, of course, I hope everyone is making these connections. It's obviously why our culture hates fathers. Do you understand? Even on Father's Day, actually, little secret, our culture still hates fathers. Turn on the TV, 
read the paper, read the magazine. Our culture hates fathers. Why? Because fathers represent God, the Father, and our culture hates God. So is that how you see your life? Do you see the glory of God's fatherhood that lies just below the surface of everything you do as a father? Every responsibility, every provision, every act of loving discipline, every encouraging word, every self-sacrificing death for the well-being of your wife and your children? Or do you just see a life of grayness, of mundane hassles, of headaches? Are you just slogging it out as a father? Trudging through the, the gray fog of blandness, of meaningless, meaninglessness, going from one weekend to the next, hoping somehow to get some kind of thrill from the ball game or the, or the, the boat ride or the, the movie or whatever. Do you see your children as simply inconvenient biological byproducts of your honeymoon night? Or do you see your role as a father as a magnificent, glorious honor that allows you to take part in eternal realities that are significant and meaningful beyond your wildest imaginations? Now, what would that look like? What are the implications of that? What does it mean? Well, the question, obviously, for every one of us who's a father for the rest of our lives will always be, how faithfully am I displaying the glory of God's fatherhood? How accurately are you showing to men and angels what God is like? Telling the truth or are you lying about him? Because that is what your fatherhood is about. It is about God. If your fatherhood is really about God and showing what God is like, what we have to do as fathers is make a constant study of what God the Father is like so that we can be like Him, so that we can tell the truth about Him, so that we can glorify Him as fathers. So what is God like? So much that we could say about this. Let me give you a few. He disciplines His children. God disciplines His children. Not out of wrath and anger, but out of love and out of concern for their own good. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God disciplines his sons. But how many of us fathers don't discipline our children at all, or at least not enough. Or when we do discipline them, how often is our discipline for them out of anger and frustration, not because we love them and hate seeing the destruction they're bringing on themselves, but we love ourselves and we love convenience and we love reputation And we want to be known as the one with the good kids and we want them to jump through our hoops, not because we love them, but because we love us. God provides for His children. Matthew 7. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? How often is our fatherhood really a display of that kind of great-hearted generosity to our kids? God leads his children. Romans 8.14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But how many of us fathers leave our children to go off and follow their own devices, especially when our kids get older? We throw up our hands. We say, well, you know, they're teenagers. Teenagers don't listen to their parents. I'm going to back off because if I engage them, they're going to run from me. That's what the culture tells me anyway, so it must be true. And so we back off and we do not lead them, we do not direct them, we do not instruct them. And we stand back and watch as they plunge themselves over and over and over again into all kinds of foolishness and destruction. It's not the way God the Father is. He leads us. God intimately embraces and welcomes His children. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, intimate, warm, personal, affectionate. How many of us fathers recoil from physical warmth and emotional intimacy with our kids? You know, and we say, I'm just not that way. My dad never was that way with me. My dad never hugged me, and I turned out okay. Right? Ask your wife if you turned out okay or not. She'll tell you. You may not be that way by nature. But God the Father in heaven is. And your fatherhood is not about telling the watching universe what you are like. Your fatherhood is telling the watching universe what God is like. There are all kinds of other ways that we could see what God the Father is really like so that we can accurately portray Him in our homes and to the world. Jesus says in John 14, 9, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. You want to know what God the Father is like? Look at Jesus Christ and act like Him. And that's what God is doing in us anyway, isn't it? He's making us into Jesus Christ. That will make you a better father because Jesus Christ shows you what the Father's like. And we could go on and on with the details. The point is, brothers, see your fatherhood as a sacred calling. And I don't mean that in some trite, sentimental way, but a sacred calling calling, a holy calling, a calling that has everything to do with God. It's not about little things. It's not about you. It's about magnificent and glorious things. Live out your lives faithfully declaring the glory of God to a watching universe of seen and unseen eyes. Now, here's my encouragement for us. It's really the encouragement of this table today. God the Father sent His Son because you're a terrible father. So am I. 
He sent his son because you blow it over and over again. You refuse to make yourself like God the Father. You live for your own glory. You live for your own comfort. You live for your own ease. You're selfish. You're cold. You're disengaged. You blow it all the time. But God the Father, in His mercy, in His provision, as a Father for you, sent His Son to live and to die for you. And He has given us His strength. And this table is all about the strength that He gives through the the blood of His Son. You're sitting here thinking, yeah, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm a terrible father. Of course you are. Of course you are. That's why Jesus Christ came. Let's pray.